give our attention at this time to our brother Edgar Quellen who will give us the word of exhortation. Brother Edgar. Dear brothers and sisters, notwithstanding Israel after the flesh's experiences in the wilderness, when the angel of God present went with them for 40 years, and yet God's presence was with them throughout their history until God deemed that they should be brought to an end as a national constitution. Notwithstanding, we say, that tremendous privilege and experience, God did bring them to an end. But lo and behold, we have today a new beginning for Israel. It is that which has brought great hope and great reaffirmation to God's people in this age and time. We would not, though, think that we should address ourselves to this particular aspect of God's Word today, but to those things which have to do with the example set but examples set at, in such a way that we ourselves ought to take heed and not follow in the footsteps of some who have stumbled and fallen. <clears throat> when we consider what the Apostle Paul said in the letter that he wrote to the Corinthians, the first letter, we are struck with the, the emphasis that he places on not allowing ourselves to fall in the same way that the children of Israel did in the beginning. He says, I would not that ye would be ignorant that all our fathers were under the sea, all passed through the sea, all under the cloud, all passed through the sea, all baptized unto Moses in the cloud and in the sea. When the pillar of fire by night and the cloud by day led them through the wilderness, the angel of God's presence was with them. They were blessed and they had taught to them <clears throat> through the law of Moses that spiritual rock which should follow them, which rock, Paul says, was Christ. But the fact that they did not please God as we would like to emphasize today in our remarks, is what should uh, strike us as being something for us to think about very seriously. With all of the advantages and all the blessings, they did not please God well. The time came when eventually the kings of Israel the kings of Judah fell away. The time came when, in spite of the announcements of Emmanuel who should come by the prophet Isaiah, 
one king in particular, Ahaz, did not think it interesting enough or serious enough or attractive to him to follow after the waters of Shiloh to drink of that water which was that which spoke of our Lord Jesus Christ which was to come. But all of these things were as Paul says for our example and they are written for our admonition upon whom the ends of the world have come. The Bible is a wonderful book. The book of books many books in a book but there is as one brother has put it in his writings an involution of ideas in the Bible and nowhere but in Revelation would we find that uh, illustrated in any greater way than that involution, involution of ideas which in another way that we are used to thinking about is the type, the shadows, the figures the examples and samples that are set before us in the Bible. And they're not only in the Old Testament, but in the New Testament. The lives of the apostles are lives to be thought of. As the next chapter of 1 Corinthians 11 chapter says, Paul says, Be ye followers of me, even as I also am of Christ. But there was no thought of competition there, we're sure but he was setting an example himself. And someone has said, very rightly, that you can say all you want to, you can use all the words you want to, but only by example can you get people to follow Christ. If you say the truth in words, but not in actions, then of course you live a lie. Well, we know what happened when Jesus appeared, Emmanuel, died with us. He found darkness in the land, and this condition of hypocrisy. But long before that, in this wonderful book, the Bible, and in the book of Isaiah, we find Emmanuel spoken of very plainly, brought out as a great light. And in this book of Isaiah, the book of Emmanuel is present before us. In the seventh chapter through the twelfth chapter of Isaiah, six chapters, we are told about Emmanuel. I would like to just read the last verses of that twelfth chapter. They're so beautiful, that, uh, and we do sing them in an anthem 47. Sing unto the Lord, for he hath done excellent things. This is known in all the earth. Cry out and shout, thou inhabitant of Zion, for great is the Holy One in the midst of thee. Just before the book of Emmanuel started, Isaiah saw the Lord on his throne, high and lifted up. When in the sixth chapter he says, In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw also the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and his train filled the temple. Well, this is a marvelous involution of ideas presented before us. 
But in the book of Emmanuel, we have a short history of Israel after the flesh, for the apostle said in the 10th chapter of 1 Corinthians, Behold Israel after the flesh. Not that we should follow them in their way, but take warning and not to follow them in their way. Not to fall away to idolatrous practices. Not to, as he said, uh, sit down after, we might say, a religious service and think about things of seriousness in God's way and then rise up to eat and play. It depends on what is in your heart, doesn't it? Of course, sometimes we are prone to take things too literally because if we can, if we be too literal-minded, we may think that uh, we ought not to eat immediately after a service. Or we may not uh, think that we should, uh, or we should think maybe we should not uh, allow ourselves any recreation. The people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. What does that tell us? It tells us that our dedication to the Lord is such that we don't come together on the first day of the week and greet one another and remember our Lord most importantly of all and then forget him during the other days. It tells us that our dedication to Emmanuel is every day of the week. We should not take it lightly then. Well, it seems that during the time of the book of Emmanuel's writing, 7 through the 12th chapters of Isaiah, it was very hard for Isaiah to get an audience with the king Ahaz to listen to God very closely. Isaiah had amply spoken of the Lord's coming and his eventual sitting upon his throne in the midst of shouts and rejoicings. But we're told that in the days of Ahaz, son of Jothan, son of Uzziah, king of Judah, that reason the king of Syria and Pekah, the son of Remaliah, king of Israel, went up toward Jerusalem to war against it. And it could not prevail against it. They could not prevail against it. Well, as a result of this impending invasion, this war that was to come upon Ahaz, we are told that his heart was moved as the tree is with the wind. Ahaz is described in Second Chronicles as one who did not write in the sight of God. So, of course, he might well fear. His heart moved, it trembled, as the trees that are moved by the wind. A great shaking, a great trembling took place. But in spite of that trembling, 
Ahaz still was not disposed to listen to Isaiah too closely, but God had purposed that this confederacy against Ahaz should not have any success. Isaiah was sent forth to Ahaz with a message, and with him went his son Shea Jashub, which means the remnant shall return. We spoke of the involution of ideas a while ago, and we would like to say that involved in Isaiah and his two sons, Shea Jashub, and the other son, Mahal Shalal Hashbaz, is this very same thing. Isaiah and his children, or his two sons, were signs, as he says in the 8th chapter, to the children of Israel. Well, some of these things may not be too apparent as we go through the, the incidents involved in the history of Israel in the past, especially in this book of Emmanuel. There is a sort of a hidden meaning or message behind it. What in the world could be meant by Isaiah going with his son, Shea Jashub, the remnant shall return? There was a message there. The, the short-range meaning had to do with the return of the captivity of Judah by the princes of Ephraim, of which we read about that in the Second Chronicles again, when Oded the prophet intervened and saw to it that a remnant did return of those of whom Ephraim and Reason, that is the children of Ephraim under Pekah and Syria under Reason, son of Ramal, uh, son of, uh, rather Pekah, the son of Remaliah, get those two names confused. Reason of Syria and, and Pekah of Israel had met with a certain amount of success in going down into Israel and they did take captive a number of the Jews at that time. And they were rather exultant about the matter, but Oded the prophet protested, and he was responsible for the returning of a certain remnant of those captives back to Judah. That was a short-range meaning. Of course, it had an immediate meaning. It had an immediate message. But what about this hidden meaning? There was a long-range really a long-range meaning to this, very significant. It really has had to do, it did have to do with the glorious return of the ransom remnant in the latter days. Another sign in uh, chapter 7 of the first chapter of the book of Emmanuel explains the return of the remnant by certain means. It is a sign, though, uh, that Ahaz refused to ask for, and this is what the sign was. It's a very familiar verse that uh, is often, very often quoted around the time of Christmas. Behold, a virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and shall call his name Emmanuel. And in the first chapter of Matthew, we read about Gabriel telling Joseph of the coming of Emmanuel, that his name would be Jesus, that his name would be Emmanuel, which means God with us. 
a long-range meaning then, going some 700 years into the future at least, but we know much further into the future. Behold, a virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and shall call his name Emmanuel. Isaiah's mission then to Ahaz was not just to tell him of the return of some captives, some immediate remnants who had been taken captive in his day, but to announce a greater deliverance of Israel and all mankind eventually. The child was to be born after the land was forsaken by both her kings. It says the land before whose two kings you are in dread will be deserted, revised standard version. Before whose two kings you are in dread will be deserted. Indeed, Ahaz was in dread, his heart trembled. But even though deserted and forsaken, by the very presence of Shia Jeshub, he was telling Ahaz a remnant shall return. Not just in his day, but in the last days of Gentile rule. Emmanuel, God with us, did come and is yet to come. And this greater coming, if we might say that this is the greater coming, but who can say that his sacrifice was of lesser importance? But yet all must come to a focus in his coming and in his kingdom. It is to be in these days that we live in ourselves. So now the, the idea of an involution, an involvement, the word involvement is connected here. We are involved ourselves. We're not just spectators. We are being acted upon by God himself through his word, through his spirit, by that spirit which is and was in Christ Jesus. An involvement of these signs is seen that goes beyond the immediate then. The real important meaning has to do with Emmanuel. About 65 years after these words were spoken, Ephraim was broken by the Assyrian. Ahaz was delivered from the conspiracy of reason and Pekah, for the king of Assyria came against them, those two confederates, and upset their plans. Their eventual plans were, of course, to, as we are told, to usurp the kingdom of Judah, turn it over, and set their own king up on the throne. But Ahaz, in spite of a deliverance, in a kind of way that perhaps he did not recognize altogether, because the king of Assyria came and took captive reason and Pekah, yet because undoubtedly that he was not attuned to God's word, he continued idolatrous. He fell away. He had undoubtedly been of an idolatrous nature or tendency all along. He built a strange altar. This reminds us of the children of Israel back in the days in the wilderness after Moses had gone up into the mountain. 
Joshua said he heard the voice of a war in the camp. And I believe it was Moses who said it was a voice of a people making merry. They had risen up to play. They had left as soon as Moses had departed out of their midst and caused Aaron to build or make a molten calf and fell away to idolatry and built a strange altar before that molten calf too. Ahaz had been smitten with the beauty of a certain altar up in Damascus and he got a pattern of it and had his workmen to build it. Well, because of this inherent desire and nature of Ahaz, God told him that evil would come upon Judah. But not just because of Ahaz, but because God knows what is in the heart of everyone. The eventual ceasing of Israel as a state then would take place. For we read in the seventh chapter of Isaiah that the eating of butter and honey by Emmanuel refers to a certain thing that should come to pass in regard to Emmanuel, of which Ahaz himself was lacking. He did not want to eat of this spiritual food that the eating of butter and honey refers to. Jeremiah, for instance, had said in regard to the spiritual food that we eat in our daily fare every day of the week that sustains us, that if properly digested, will make us a pleasing and healthy and pleasing-looking people in God's sight. For you and I, when we look at one another, don't know whether by the, the physical aspect we are brothers and sisters or not, do we? We have to look at one another in a different way, spiritually discerning one another. Well, Jeremiah said, Thy words were found, and I did eat them. And, of course, we're familiar with the psalmist who says, More to be desired all day than gold, yea, than much fine gold, sweeter also than the honey and the honeycomb. Then, when Emmanuel should eat butter and honey, we have a reference to Jesus and his fare and his Food. He himself who fed from that word of God, on that bread of God, was he himself the bread of God who came down from heaven. Another sort of environment and involution. We find this oftentimes. Jesus is the door and he is the shepherd. He is the altar and he is the offering and he is, he is the sacrifice. And he said, my meat is to do the will of him that sent me. This was his love, this was his meat. And moreover, as we have seen, that before the child shall refuse the evil and choose the good, the land would be deprived of both of her kings. Jesus himself did refuse the evil and did choose the good. He did no sin, and neither was God found in his mouth. Well, we continue on. Because there, there are and there is 
in the book of Emmanuel that which we should expect, isn't there? It is about Emmanuel. It isn't just about Ahaz and these two northern kings and so many people immediately of that time. It really is about Emmanuel, about Jesus Christ. So we continue on with the prophesying that takes place in the book of Emmanuel. It has to do with events that should begin to take place in the affairs of the kings of Judah, especially. The prophecy about the Egyptians and the Assyrians, the, the fly of Egypt and the bee of, of Assyria coming into the land. And that's what happened. Eventually, Tiglath-Pileser came and distressed Ahaz. And so it was that the Assyrian, whom Ahaz hired with the spoil of the temple to deliver him from Syria and Israel, his enemies, became the Lord's hired razor to make Judah bear. A figure that is used elsewhere by Jeremiah, who said, to cut off thine hair, for the Lord hath rejected and forsaken the generation of Israel. But notwithstanding the iniquity and the desolation, there was to be yet good food and an elect remnant. For it shall come to pass in that day that a man shall nourish a young cow and two sheep. Rather difficult language unless we understand the gospel. Of course, uh, we can arrive at some of the answers even without a complete understanding of the gospel. It shall come to pass in that day that a man shall nourish a young cow and two sheep. We are aware that there are marginal references that we agree with it many times in our search in the scriptures that refer to Jesus. These things that were written a couple of thousand, 2,700 years ago are recognized as being in reference to Jesus Christ by many students of the Bible. Christadelphians don't have any corner on this kind of research, but research and facts alone are not the answer. There has to be an understanding, uh, an ability to see the relevancy of all of these things in regard to, to the gospel, and the guide, in regard to what God would have us to believe in our relationship to him. But a man shall nourish a young cow and two sheep. It does sound rather strange. In a way, of course, we, we can understand that literally, can't we? But we know there must be a spiritual discernment here. A man is Emmanuel. It shall come to pass also that for the abundance of milk that they shall give, he, Emmanuel, shall eat butter, for butter, butter and honey shall everyone eat that is left in the land. That is the same food that was to nourish Emmanuel as we've referred to already. He himself is in a riddle-like way before us in the book of Emmanuel, and especially in this 21st verse, which refers to the young cow and the two sheep. A young cow, that is, 
literally a heifer of the herd among the animals that Abraham was sacrificed when God confirmed the covenant and Abraham received the sign of his own resurrection back in the 15th of Genesis was a heifer of three years old. So about 500 years after this, God appointed to Israel as, as an ordinance of purific purification the water of separation made with the ashes of a red heifer without spot, when was no blemish, and upon which never came yoke. Well, Paul says that the substance of this was Christ, in the ninth chapter of Hebrews. As to the few sheep, Christ is at once the Lamb of God and the great shepherd of the sheep. The two ideas are blended, as it were, in Isaiah 53, where it says, All we like sheep have gone astray. Emmanuel, the word made flesh, nourished a remnant, which being thus begotten by the Father with the word of his spirit, the word of his truth, became in turn the minister of the same word and shepherds of the sheep. Our involvement again, Emmanuel, the man, the shepherd, who nourishes his sheep and who in turn expects his sheep to nourish and minister to one another, minister to one another, and to ask the golden question, which we believe might be well the title of the question that Jesus asked Peter at the time when he was about to be received up to the Father. Lovest thou me, said Jesus to Peter, lovest thou me? And Peter said, yes, thou knowest that I love thee. Feed my sheep, feed my sheep. So then, in our consideration of the book of Emmanuel, in the ministry of the prophets, of the ministry of God's people of all ages, we must be aware that we ourselves are to minister, as it were the ministry of the saints of all ages, and yet ministering to the saints. We cannot escape this, and we cannot stand aloof and regard it as something to be entertained intellectually that we may understand and get some joy out of. For we will never get the joy unless we ourselves are involved, unless we really are consumed, as Jesus said he was, by the zeal of his Father. In turn, then we must become ministers of the same word and shepherds of the sheep as our great shepherd Jesus Christ himself has set the pattern. The sheep become like their shepherd, always lovingly obedient to him who alone is that great shepherd, and they look like him. They are not just externally like him, but they are throughout like him. They do not have an outer covering that makes them look like sheep, but within their ravening wolves. 
filled with dead men's bones. They are the living living, but not the living dead, as Jesus referred to. There's an interesting way in which Jesus refers to the dead in Christ. He says they sleep. The apostle Paul says that too. So we are to minister. We are not just to speak, but we are to do. Apart from the milk and honey of the word, it is impossible for us to do any constructive work in Christ Jesus then. The, the milk and honey is the, the energy, as it were, the building blocks and the energy that allow us to build, to do, to work. We cannot perform unless we have something in our head that tells us or has already been supplied, of course, by the Word of God, by which we are able to constructively live in Christ Jesus. What I'm trying to say is we cannot go uh, day by day forgetting to read. The Bible Companion is a wonderful structure, model to go by, but not the only one. It's, it's one that many Christadelphians have followed for years and years. But there are other good plans. We can get in the habit of, of not reading, just as we can get in the habit of reading. The recipients of the hope of Israel, begotten by the word, grow by it. The phrase, everyone left in the land, whether this phrase refers to the remnants of that day which escaped the judgments that were fast coming upon Israel, or to the elect remnant that shall at last enter into the eternal inheritance, they must conform. They must conform to Emmanuel. They must conform to that pattern of himself, his character, always desiring that food that he gives. But then we are told about briars and thorns, too, in this particular chapter, the seventh chapter. And this reminds us of the curse that came upon the land and upon the people when sin began. Thus the land cursed becomes figurative of the people. The concluding verse of chapter 7 seems to be illustrated by Christ and the apostles. Jesus was a sower in the land who in sending forth of the twelve upon the mountains of Israel figuratively sent forth the feet of the ox and the ass. So brothers and sisters, may we go forth too. Of course, not as the apostles, not as anything as effective as the apostolic era was, but in our way and in our in, uh, abilities, whether speaking the word to others or living an exemplary life so that others may see by example how that a Christian ought to be and then enable the doctrinal content of the gospel be spoken. But we cannot be effective like that, that is to speak the word of God unless we can set proper examples ourselves. 
and nowhere probably in the world in the society of man is this more evident than in what is happening to the American family today and sadly to note in the Negro family too uh, not that we are separating but we mean that especially in the Negro family recent studies have shown a disintegration of that family breaking up but we are a member we are members of the family of God this is a glorious family the family of God we are brothers and sisters of Jesus Christ we're sons of God we're daughters of God all in harmony with the concept of relationships one with the other are we really uh, true sons of God and true brothers and sisters